I'm so grateful for your participation in these streaming services, or if you're watching a recording later on, or reading these words at some point, I'm grateful for you, for your partnership in this time of teaching and worship, and we are grateful for your gifts. Lord, we offer our gifts to you, and we thank you for your provision to us, that you never forsake your people and you never leave us alone. Now, Lord, as we turn to the teaching of the word, we ask that you would open your word to us and open us to your word, so that we might well hear and deeply understand what you, Holy Spirit, have to say to us today. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, amen. In the early years of 1940, London, the capital, of course, of Great Britain, and one of the great cities of the world, I would say, was under siege. And it was siege unlike what had been seen in warfare before. Of course, these were in the early days of that global conflagration known as World War II. And this was during the days of the Battle of Britain, when German Air Force was fighting for dominance in the air over England and the English Air Force was responding in kind. By the late summer of 1940, the Battle of Britain had been decided in favor of Britain. Britain had shown itself able to defend, although at great cost, against that onslaught from Germany. And at that time, the Third Reich, the Nazi powers, determined that it would be only available to them to fight a battle of annihilation. In other words, they moved from trying to gain air supremacy to simply trying to completely obliterate that great old city of London. And they engaged in what came to be known as the Blitz, which comes from the German word for lightning, because it was like wrath from above, fire from on high, coming down to obliterate and destroy the city, the buildings, the people. You can imagine, or at least we can try, how horrific it must have been in those days to hear the air raid sirens go off and know that at any moment from the sky, huge bombs could be falling anywhere, blowing up buildings and blocks. We've all watched in horror and sorrow uh, at the outcome of the recent uh, tragic explosion in Beirut in Lebanon. And it reminds us of how devastating such events could be. While that was not, of course, a bomb from above, nevertheless, it was a horrible explosion. Now imagine events like that occurring with regularity in the same city, day after day, night after night, at unknown times. And of course, many had to bury loved ones or had loved ones buried under rubble beyond which they could hardly be found. It was a time of horror a time of fear, and a time when many people understandably questioned God. How could a good God allow such bad things to happen? How can anything good come out of this? And will the world survive? It's easy for us now, 80 years later, to look back and know the answers. But now we are living in a moment of our own. And while I don't intend to make comparisons between the trauma of what people are experiencing now versus what people were experiencing in London or any part of the world during those horrible days of World War II, suffice it to say that every generation has its troubles 
its traumas. And yet many of us may be asking the question in these days, can the world survive this present moment? And if it does, what will the world look like? Can our nation survive? And if it does, what will it be like? Can I survive? Can my family? And if we do, what will be the result? What will be our belief about God, about ourselves, about the world, about the future? When questions like these arise, historically, people have often gone to God for the answers. Now, someone can say out there, not me, or not everyone, and in any case, you may be right. Not everyone goes to God. But I believe it is wise to go to God with the hard questions. It is right to go to God when we are confused or when we are afraid. The BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, of course, turned to an Oxford dawn in those days, in the early years of the 1940s. They turned to a professor. His friends called him Jack, but his full name was Clive Staples Lewis. He's better known by the name that he wrote under, C.S. Lewis. He had written a book, in fact, in 1940, called The Problem of Pain. One of the executives at the BBC had read it and been impressed with what Professor Lewis had written in that book about how we are to understand the goodness of God in the presence of bad things. Formally, that theological question is called theodicy. And by the way, we'll be talking about it in our PSOM class. It's a question that has faced humanity throughout the ages. If there is a God, and that God is good, then why does he allow bad things? In talking about the problem of pain, Lewis was talking about that very question. And in answering it, he came to more conclusions than I can possibly reference here. But the undergirding response has to do with what we've been studying in recent weeks in our Joshua Generation series, which is in the midst of bad things, God is up to good plans. God is moving in good ways, and he has a purpose. It doesn't mean that God is responsible for everything, but it does mean that God is greater than anything, and that he will work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes, as the Apostle Paul himself said in Romans chapter 8. And so, out of the bombings that were occurring and the war that was going on came an invitation to C.S. Lewis to give a series of radio talks where he would speak to people the way I'm speaking to you now, except he spoke with a great deal more eloquence and knowledge than I have. But thankfully, the same Holy Spirit that was guiding him is guiding you and I today. And it was by that spirit and with reference to the word that C.S. Lewis developed a series of lectures that he ultimately bound together in a book that was titled Mere Christianity. Now, this clever dude in front of you is once again pulling in a plug for PSOM because that, in fact, is going to be the book that we're going to use in our class. But I want to go back further in my own life to when I first read Mere Christianity. My children are now almost the age I was when I read it. I read it in my senior year of high school. It was a gift to me, actually a graduation gift, but uh, I got it early in the year. And I read it, and I was amazed 
at how it confronted me with limitations I had about who Jesus is and what he expects of me. But I was also enthralled, passionately invigorated with the idea that following Jesus is about more than just living a moral life. It's about being transformed. And it's a transformation that enables us to see the world around us through different eyes, through the lens of God's love, with the primacy of his purpose guiding us, the presence of his spirit leading us, and the reliability of his word informing us. In this series, we've been talking about how difficult challenges Battles, enemies, obstacles bring about blessings when they are faced with faith. And I think that the fact of Mere Christianity, a book that I can honestly say changed my life when I read it, and I've read it again and again, and I even teach out of it now because I find it to be such a powerful book about the simple fundaments of Christian faith. To think that that book came out of such a horrible environment, such a terrible circumstance, reminds me that you and I have no idea what good God could produce through the trouble that we are facing if we will give that trouble and ourselves into his hands. And then something comes into existence that wouldn't have existed before. So that not only is the trouble spoken to and very often a solution is provided, But even if we go down a pathway that goes darker and darker or up a hill that goes closer and closer to a cross, it's a cross that we are called to. It's a transformation that we desire. If there's a death, we know there's a resurrection beyond it. And that changes everything. If you and I are to be the people that Jesus has called us to be and died for us to be and rose again in order for us to be, if we are to be a great people of God, then we are people who must recognize that God has said, you will have struggles in the land. You will face crisis in your soul. You must carry your cross every day. But you can have joy because in this, in me, is greatness, is life, is victory. In Joshua chapters 16 and 17, we continue in this pathway in which God is leading his people into a new land. And as they go into that land, they face challenges because they are entering in. Because of the call of God. In other words, one way to avoid those challenges, one way to answer the problem of the pain or the hardship would be to disobey God, to not go in. Just stay put where you are or go back where you came from. But that's not the pathway of the Joshua generation. And I'll remind you, the name Joshua in Greek becomes Jesus. Joshua and Jesus have the same name because Joshua, the Old Testament leader of the ancient people of Israel, was a man who allowed himself to be patterned after a savior that was to come. Even though Joshua could not yet foresee 
the arrival of Jesus with the clarity that you and I have because of the word of God and because of the fact that we live 2,000 years after him instead of 1,300 years before him. Nevertheless, by faith, Joshua was able to know the Lord. And the scripture itself says, no one comes to the Father except through the Son. Joshua is a model for us of Jesus. And therefore, the Joshua generation is a Jesus generation. And the Jesus generation says, not my will to avoid pain or back out of struggle, but your will, Father God, to press into the place of promise and enter into the land of harvest. The Lord gives it not just as an invitation, but a command. Don't be afraid because I'm going with you. And don't doubt because I've promised to you. Not only do I make my command to call you in, but I make a covenant to secure you in the promise that I have for you and I myself in your covering. I am, says the Lord in his great covenantal name, the one who will be with you, go before you, guard behind you, cover over you. If you will obey what I say and do as I do, you will receive my reward. That's the Joshua generation promise. Now, in the first half of the book, we saw that promise brought out in many different exciting events. But in the second half that we are in this series now, a lot of the material is rather dry reading, I'll admit that. Uh, but if you will dig into it, you'll find some exciting events interspersed into that. And also, the significance of what is being divided and given out has meaning for us today. It's not just that the land of Israel is being given over to these particular tribes. It's also a metaphor for how you and I are to inherit the fruitful promise that God has for you and I. So in Joshua chapter 16 and 17, we move on to see more of the tribal allotments that are being given during this time. Last week, we talked about Judah, a massive tribe here in the southern region. We've talked about how each of the 12 tribes is named for one of the 12 sons, the individual brothers who were born to the man named Jacob, who is also known as Israel. Of course, those men have died hundreds of years earlier by the time we get to the book of Joshua, but their descendants are clans, huge families that are essentially uh, federal states in this confederacy of Israel that is now stretching out to embrace the land. And so in today's teaching, we see in uh, chapter 16 and 17, allotments made to one of the sons, and yet you'll notice that there are two tribes there, but they're called half-tribes. That's because Joseph, you remember the son Joseph, who was rejected by his brothers and sold into slavery in Egypt. Talk about difficult times. Talk about pain and hardship. Imagine that, rejection by your own family. Imagine loss of your dreams. Joshua literally had dreams in which he felt that the Lord was saying to him, you will be one that your brothers bow down before and your father bows down before. And yet, instead, his brothers cast him out, very nearly kill him, tell their father that he's dead, rip apart his cloak and cover it in animal's blood, saying, look, Joseph was killed by wild animals, but in fact, they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And for decades, Joseph labors in that cruel environment. And yet, ultimately, because of his faith, because Joseph also is a model of Jesus for us, rejected by his own, and yet still faithful to the Father, he is blessed and elevated 
to a role of leadership in Egypt. And when his brothers are finally brought before him and they realize who Joseph is and they are horrified by the fact that Joseph can now take his revenge on them, instead, Joseph shows them love and forgiveness and says to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And because of this, because of Joseph's faithfulness, he receives a double portion of blessing. That is, Joseph becomes a double tribe. His two sons each are half-tribes. His son Ephraim and his son Manasseh compose the house of Joseph, if you will. And so in the future, they're numerous and they are favored. And so the half-tribe of Ephraim receives this central allotment, which is right here by Bethel, uh, that's kind of in this uh, border area between Benjamin and uh, and Ephraim, and will be the, the sort of de facto early capital of uh, ancient Israel and a place of worship. In fact, it is at, the, at Bethel that the tabernacle is housed, and we will talk more about that in future weeks. And it's there that, for instance, the prophet Samuel, as a young boy, is uh, brought into the priesthood and raised up in the things of the Lord. And it's Samuel who will ultimately anoint the first king of Israel, Saul, and later the great king of Israel, David. Manasseh also receives an allotment. Now, you may remember that Manasseh was one of the half-tribes that also has land in this Transjordanian section. And when we get to Joshua 22, uh, we will speak more about what's going on here, but essentially Manasseh has two portions that are allotted to it on either side of the Jordan River. So in these chapters, we are being told about this land, but there's some other things that I want us to focus on in today's message. Uh, I've already mentioned how Manasseh and Ephraim are half-tribes of Joseph. I'd like to remind you of what their names mean, because there's always significance in names in the Word of God. When Joseph um, had his first son, with his Egyptian wife, by the way, because he was living in Egypt and was given an Egyptian wife. He named that firstborn son Manasseh, which in his uh, language means causing to forget. If you look in Genesis chapter 41, you can find these two passages uh, that are referenced here about the birth of Joseph's sons. He names his first son causing to forget because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. There's a point of praise, isn't there? That's the point, uh, the voice of experience. That's a person who says, I've been through the troubled times. I've been down in the pit. I've faced rejection. I thought my, my dreams were broken and shattered. I thought my future was lost. But you've made me forget all of that, Lord, because you've shown me that you had something greater coming. So it's part of the healing process, being able to move beyond pain, being able to move beyond resentment, being able to forgive. It's a gift of God, and Joseph received that gift. By the time his second son was born, he named that son Ephraim, which means, interestingly enough, double ash heap. That doesn't sound like a great thing, right? A double-sized ash heap. But also, euphemistically, means doubly fruitful. I'm not sure precisely why, but I suspect that this may have something to do with the fertilization properties of ash. That, in other words, by piling up something unpleasant, you can bring about the growth of something good. And that's exactly what we're talking about. 
You may feel as though God has burned to ash all your hopes. You may feel as though God has dumped fertilizer on your life. But Ephraim is a word, a name that acknowledges actually what God intends is good. God intends to grow me, to make me fruitful, and he has done it. God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Will you do something by faith? Will you repeat that sentence with me? God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Say it. God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. There is nothing that you or I are experiencing now or can experience that can tear us away from the love of the Lord that is made visible and available to us through Jesus Christ. There is nothing that God will allow in your life or mine that he will not use to bring about your blessing. Believe that and receive that. It takes faith. You don't believe it because you can see it at every moment. We don't believe it because it's undeniable. We believe it because God has said it, because God has promised it, and he's a covenant God. And the name of Ephraim, it praises him for that truth, a truth realized. So Manasseh and Ephraim are tribes whose very names reflect this reality. Times may be tough and things may be hard, but God will make us fruitful in the end. Now, in these chapters, there's more that we will see about the troubles that even Manasseh and Ephraim experience. In Joshua 16, verse 10, we are told that as they're going in, the people of Ephraim are not able to completely displace the Canaanites that are living in part of the region that has been given to them. This is exactly the same problem that we saw with Judah last week, and I'll have more to say about it in a moment. There's another struggle in the land that the people experience, a particular group within the tribe of Manasseh. In Joshua chapter 17, we are told about the daughters of Zelophehad. Zelophehad here is one of the men of the tribe of Manasseh who does not have any sons. He only has daughters. And the problem for their family is that according to the law of the land at that time, only males are able to inherit from their father. Now, you may immediately um, feel some umbrage about this. It reflects uh, a socially inequitable and, and, and unjust time. Well, it's true that it reflects a different uh, reality than you or I live in now or would want to see in society now. But the point is that it is a real problem for these people. They have to address this injustice. Otherwise, their family will be wiped out effectively. The name will not continue on, and therefore they will not have received the inheritance that was promised to them. And so because of that, these daughters go to Joshua and the leaders of the people and say, we, we need an inheritance. And the leaders give it to them. They make a change in the status quo. They reward the faith of these daughters who say, the Lord promised this to our family, and therefore, you need to make good on the promise of the Lord for us. And they receive from that. I want to take you then also to uh, Joshua 17, where we are told about the particular challenge that the, uh, the Manassites, as they're called, that is the people of Manasseh, are facing with these Canaanites. The Canaanites were determined to live in that region. 
When the Israelites grew stronger, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor, but they didn't drive them out completely. In other words, here is a situation where the people of Manasseh were supposed to completely lay hold of the land, but they're not able to do that, and instead they end up with this tension and strife in their society because there's different people groups vying for placement. And ultimately, the Manassites, the people of Israel in that particular tribe, do gain dominance, but they have to gain it in a way that does not produce the best of what God intended for them. And it reflects something of their lack of faith, I think we can infer. They come to Joshua and they say, look, um, the people of Ephraim and the people of Manasseh both are saying, we don't have all the land that we need because there's more people still in it because we weren't able to displace this. But we are a great people, meaning great in number. There's lots of us. We need more land. And so Joshua responds and says, well, if in fact you are a great people, and I think here you can hear something of a double entendre, although that only exists perhaps uh, strictly speaking in the English translation, but there is a sense in Joshua's response that he's saying to them, if you're so great, then walk in your greatness. If there's so many of you, then you can lay claim to additional land. And you can face off against, for instance, the Rephaites. You can face these Canaanites living in that land. But they say, no, 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 that, that, that's not possible for us because those people, the Rephaites and the people living on the plains, they have these iron chariots. This, again, is the attitude that the people of the Moses generation had had. No, we can't face those enemies. They're stronger than us. They're bigger than us. They're more well-resourced than us. But it's not a response of faith. It's a response of fear. And Joshua says to them, you are numerous. You are powerful. You are a great people. And you're not going to have just one allotment. You will get a double portion, even as the name Ephraim prophetically confessed. But that prophetic confession is a confession of faith. So walk in your faith. He says, you can have the forested hill country. Clear it, and it'll be yours. Even with their iron chariots, you can overcome the enemy. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The very verse that Pastor Henji mentioned earlier is a confession of faith along the lines of what Joshua is saying. Believe in who you are because you belong to God. Believe in the God who called you because he covers you. And now step out in faith and stand on his word. Take hold of his promise. So, to be a great people is to be people of faith. And that means facing our struggles with that faith. I just got to say, my struggle is that the slides aren't responding, guys, so I don't know if there's something you can do, but I, I'm getting a null here. But if you are among those who have downloaded the uh, PDF of the bulletin, you can find an outline there. There are certain struggles that are common to humanity and are on display in this section of scripture in Joshua 16 and 17. One of them is the struggle of adversity. You and I face things that frighten us. We face situations in which there are obstacles that we don't know we can overcome. 
Just like the tribe of Judah, Ephraim and Manasseh were given a promised portion, but they're not able to fully take hold of that promise the way that they would like to or intended to, and they become subject to ongoing uh, strife, tension, stress, pagan influences. You and I also have promises from the Lord. He has said to us, PCF, that you're a Joshua generation. If you're listening to this message right now, I want you to know the Lord has a promise for you. And it is about being fruitful. It is about overcoming adversity. It is especially about overcoming the adversary of your soul. We don't struggle against flesh and blood, just like Paul reminded the church of Ephesus. We struggle against spiritual powers that desire to shipwreck our faith, that desire to discourage us, to discredit us, to distract us. And if you and I are going to overcome that, we have to overcome it in the Lord. Our own strength is not sufficient, but God's strength is. His grace is sufficient for us because his strength is made perfect in our weakness, just like 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 says. And so if we are to be a great people, we need to ask the Lord to help us to claim our territory. And the first aspect of God's territory in your life is your own soul. It's you, your heart, your mind. Listen, remember when we studied out of the Song of Solomon earlier this year, and we said that people who have a promise of harvest need to remember the scripture that says that it's the little foxes who spoil the vineyard. Do you have any little foxes in your mind and in your heart? Little areas of doubt, disbelief, discouragement. Do you give place to depression? Are there things that you don't forgive of others you're holding on to? Those are the, the Canaanites of the soul. <laughs> uh, maybe you have uh, heard, uh, I'm drawing a blank now. This is what happens to me as I get older. I can't remember names. Um, who is it that preaches about life in the word? Uh, and she wrote Battlefield of the Mind. Well, in any case, I'm drawing a blank. Um, I, 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 but she makes the comment that you and I today don't face the Canaanites, but we face the mortgageites. We face the depressionites. We face the abuseites. We face the COVIDites, right? In other words, it's the financial concerns, the relational breaches, the divorceites, the children that don't live the way that we want them to, the parents that are suffering some kind of illness. Maybe you yourself are dealing with some kind of health issue or a problem at work or a boss that you don't like. But I'm not trying to externalize all of those things. What I'm actually saying is the issues with all of that are solved in the place of our own heart first. It's out of the heart that we speak and out of our heart that the issues of life spring and the struggles that we have externally really reflect an inner struggle. If we are giving place to something in our soul or in our life or in our thought life, some addiction or persuasion or predilection, it will defeat us. It may not utterly erase the promise of what God has for us, but you and I may end up living in that, that situation, that circumstance, in which we are just allowing those things to cohabitate with us. 
We are allowing those thoughts and ways to continue to dominate us. That's not the promise. It is a struggle to face that. But God will give us both the courage and the conviction to do it. We must invite God to confront those places in ourselves where we are not living according to his word, his will, or his ways, and ask him to root that out of us and to address places where maybe we're complacent about our faith. Oh, I'll read more of the word some other time. I'll pray more some other time. Right now, I'd rather do this. I'd rather do that. That kind of complacency becomes a Canaanite encampment. And it means that it limits the fruitfulness and the victory that you and I can experience. Now, sometimes we struggle with things that are no fault of our own, and the daughters of Zelophehad reflect that reality. Sometimes it's not a matter of adversity, but scarcity. We simply lack something that we need. Either we, we don't have the, uh, the, the, the category that is necessary in order to be favored, or we don't have the capacity to receive what it is that we need for a certain circumstance or situation. In that situation, these women said, we don't have the legal standing to receive any inheritance from our family, which means our inheritance will be lost. And this will be wrong, not only because it means that we don't have what's been promised to us, but because it doesn't reflect the will of the Lord, you see. That's the really prevalent and relevant aspect of that story. It's not that they're greedy and trying to grab something, nor that they are afraid that they can't get what they need. In fact, what they're doing reflects their faith. They're saying, we believe God provides for us. We believe his promise that said your family will receive an inheritance. And so we are coming to you, our leaders, in submission and respect to say, will you see our situation and respond to it? And that's something that you and I can do as well. We can call out to the Lord and say, I am lacking something that I need. I am not seeing something that you've promised. I am dealing with something that I can't overcome. And I'm calling upon you. I'm calling upon your word. But what I'm asking for is not my will, but yours in that situation. I'm saying you've promised to provide, so I'm asking for your provision. I'm saying you have promised to guide, so I'm asking for your guidance and your discernment and your wisdom. And you have said that you will keep in perfect peace all those who trust in you. So I'm putting my trust into you. The, the author of Philippians, the Apostle Paul, once again put it this way. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in the power of Christ Jesus. These daughters of Zelophehad were facing dire circumstances because of the situation. But instead of just giving up or getting angry, they responded with savvy wisdom and bold faith. And they went to God and the leaders that God had put in place and said, we are asking. You know, sometimes you and I should remember what uh, the book of James says. You have not because you ask not. What do you need today? I don't mean for your luxury or privilege or for comfort, but what do you need in order to live the life that God has called you to live? What do you need in order to walk stably in that faith? 
If you are struggling with depression, you need a response to that. If you're not able to pay your bills, that's a legitimate need. God hasn't called you into poverty. That doesn't mean that God is promising you a Rolls Royce. It means that God is promising to provide, but he's also teaching you and I to ask, seek, and knock because that's how his provision comes to us. To submit to proper authority, but to do so in a way that recognizes and acknowledges proper righteousness and always, above all, to seek the things of the Lord by faith. If we are to be a great people, we must let our faith in God define our circumstances and not vice versa. Don't let the circumstances of what you see around you and what you feel within you tell you who God is. The problem of pain is answered one way. This answer is God is good whether you and I can see it, feel it or not. Whether we believe it or not, it's true. But when we believe it, we will operate in faith according to that belief and we will see the results. We'll be like Joseph who said, Lord, I had problems, but you made me forget it. Lord, I had troubles, but you brought about blessing. Friends, brothers who betrayed me, you meant it for evil, but God made it good. That's the promise of faith. There is no scarcity in Christ because whatever we truly need, we will have. And if God doesn't give it to us, we don't need it. But I believe that my God can meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Finally, there is the struggle of identity. We face adversaries, spiritual enemies around us and spiritual weakness within us. And yet God gives us the strength to overcome and armors us in his character. So that it's really a question of identity to be able to overcome the enemy. We face situations of lack or places or times where we may feel that resource is scarce, but when we recognize that our needs are met in Christ, we don't allow ourselves to live according to the sight of our flesh, but rather according to the faith of our spirit. And ultimately that means that if we are to really be who God has called us to be, we need to know who he is. Again, that's why I'm teaching on the fundamentals of faith today. That's why I want to talk about how coming into contact with Jesus Christ changes who we are. When the people of Ephraim came to, to Joshua and said, we need more, we're dealing with scarcity, and we can't take the land that you're telling us to take because there's people with iron chariots who are strong adversaries, what Joshua essentially said to them was, if you know who you really are, those aren't problems for you because they're not problems for God. God's name, the covenant name of power, that he shared with his people, with Moses, with Joshua, with you and I, is I am. I am here, says the Lord, in the middle of your circumstance. I am aware. Have you asked him that? Do you see what I'm going through? Do you know what I'm dealing with? And are you aware of what I'm, what I'm going through and what I need? The answer of the Lord is his very name, I am. Are you able to do anything about it? I am. Are you willing to do anything about it? I am. Are you going to do anything about it? I am. 
And what I'm doing about it, says the Lord, is coming to you and saying, give yourself to me. Take up your cross, die to yourself, to the ways of the flesh, and live in me. I am with you always. I am never going to leave you nor forsake you. I am honest and reliable. I am fulfilling my promise to you. And if you abide in me and I abide in you, says Jesus Christ, then I am going to make you doubly fruitful. And the land of your struggle will become the kingdom of blessing. But there's only one way, a narrow way, into that promise, and it's the way of faith. It's the way of faith that says, I am willing to walk into the place that God has called me, even if it's fearful, even if there are enemies, even if there are challenges, even if I feel I'm lacking, because I am walking with the Lord. I am following in his way. We must face our struggles, not as the people that we were born into this world as, people of the flesh, but people who are born again. If anyone is going to inherit the promise of the kingdom, they must be born again. Look at John chapter 3. It's where we find the most well-known verse, arguably, in the world from the Bible. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That promise comes in the context of a command, and the command is this, be born again. And every one of us who have said, I want to follow Jesus Christ, that's the confession we're making. I want to be born again. If you have been born again, then recognize you are a great people. Now live according to that faith. Because if you are that great thing, but you don't live according to that great word, then you won't re realize and receive all the greatness of that promise. But if it is true of you, then live in that truth and walk according to its light. And if it's not, if, friend, you're watching this and you have never given your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, or you say, I haven't been born again, I'm not a new person, then let that new birth happen now. Let the troubles and trials of this present moment drive you to the Lord. Or if you feel like you're doing pretty good, remember this, no one is good except God. God is the source of all goodness. So whatever your circumstance is, whether you're facing adversaries or you're receiving blessings, whether there's scarcity or you have a double portion, you need God. I need God. And without God, we are nothing. But in God, we are a great people. And we are given a great promise. Lord, we thank you that you give us what we need to follow you. But we also confess, Lord, that we have turned away in fear from things that you have called us to do. And we have allowed, through complacency or selfishness, things that don't reflect you, that don't honor you, to keep place in our lives. In other words, Lord, we're sinners. We miss the mark of who you are. But we believe that you are a God who forgives sin and who transforms people 
by the renewing of our mind and the resurrection of our soul. And even our body shall be transformed and resurrected because of you. Forgive us, Lord, of our waywardness and our sins and turn us back to you, Lord God. Or perhaps for the first time, there's someone praying with me now who would say, Lord, take my life. I give it to you. If that's you, friend, just say that. Say that where you are. If you can say it out loud, that's all the better. If you're in a place where you need to say it within, then say it within. But say it to the Lord because he hears. Your God who is in secret hears and sees and knows. Say that to him. I give my heart to you. I give my life to you. I give my mind to you. I give my future to you. I give everything I have to you. I belong to you. I want to follow you. I want to follow you. I want to follow you. I want to be like you. I want to be known as yours. I want to identify with you, Jesus. I want to be like you. I want to live for you. I want to be filled by you. And if you are asking, Lord, are you willing to receive me? The name of the Lord is his answer. I am. I do. Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Heal you of disease. Cure you of despair. Provide you with what you need. I give you myself. I am the promise, says the Lord. I am your savior, says Jesus. And I am glad, says Courtney. And I hope you can agree with that too. Lord, thank you. We praise and bless your name.